Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Healthy Perspectives podcast. Thanks for joining us for today's journey, and I hope you enjoy. Violence in America. It has captured the attention of our country and the world around. We recently had a fair amount of violence. Um, Unfortunately, it cost us a, a whole bunch of children's lives, and that has drawn some good media attention to the issue of violence. And it has captivated me a tiny bit. Um, what I want to do today is, is share with you what I have dug into, just so you have this information. Uh, I'm going to, obviously, it's going to be a clinical perspective, uh, but I'm, I'm not going to shy away from the hard conversation. Let's start with what is violence over history? What we look at is right now, the, all of the talk is about guns and, and I, I get it. I understand why, because guns have been a part of the discussion for a long time now. We have had guns for hundreds of years, uh, and they can cause death rather quickly. Um, so can other things. But to start off, let's go back and just look at what violence has been in history. You know, if you, if you look back at, uh, you know, way 2000 plus years ago, what did we see? We saw people getting beaten with sticks, um, being stoned to death, whips became a thing. Uh, eventually, they they moved toward ropes, and ropes were violence. Then it became metals and swords, and you had swords. You know, we had uh, metal workers that could take a, a you know a glob of of metal and turn it into really sharp things like swords and knives and daggers and stuff like that. Then we had the creation of chariots so people could be chased at high speeds. Then, you know, we keep moving forward and we see things like munitions, small munitions, usually not very accurate at the beginning, but very frightening because if they hit, you get major infections, they would penetrate through the skin, stuff like that. Then we had cannons and ships and eventually planes and and we see now we've got drones and we've got grenades, not your typical back in the day grenades, but grenades that have digital mechanisms so that you can strategize when they're going to go. Like there's the technology has, has come a long way, but if you follow my path, there's been violence all along. What do we do with this? Well, we know that people have a tendency to violence. So I got to thinking as a therapist, I'm going, why, why is this uh, happening? And will it ever stop? And truth be told, I, I did some digging into this and we talked about you know good and evil in a previous podcast. So I'm going to stay away from that. We know 100% certainty that there's evil in the world. There just is. If you don't believe that, I don't know. I, I think probably you got to pull your head out of the ground and, and take a look around because there is absolutely evil in the world. Um, 
But for today's purpose, I wanted to highlight what have we learned about violence? What do we know, but what have we learned about violence? And I did, uh, I, I went on to, you know, what, you know, I learned in, uh, you know, in school, you know, you, you do some research. And so I went on to EBSCO and I went on to their academic search premiere. It's just a database of articles and books and just all kinds of stuff. Uh, they actually have multiple sites and I sort of, I decided to zero in on America and violence because, Ultimately, that's where the most recent massive violence occurred. Not that there's not violence happening every day all over the world. I'm not naive. I know that that's happening. But I really wanted to zoom in on American culture. And I, I, came, I quickly came across a, a work from 1998. It was uh, December of 98. It was put out by USA Today. Volume 127, page 1 and 2. So if you want to go look it up, feel free. And one of the things that I discovered in that is that they started from the premise of what environmental predispositions are in place before the guns enter the scenario. And this was done, uh, this was actually uh, something that I, I, I believe Clinton had, uh, you know, a, a team of people take a look at this. And this is, this is what they basically found. Children who came from chaotic, at-risk backgrounds, such as parents on drugs, inconsistent parenting difficulties, different adults in and out of the house, any form of abuse, these kinds of homes. So they already had this environmental predisposition. They showed a dramatic acceleration toward violence if exposed to, here are the things that they were exposed to, easy and early access to weapons. It didn't specify guns, but it, it did say weapons. Um, I, I think back into the 90s, and there was there was a lot of knives in, in the teenagers' hands at that point. Um, I, I know there were guns too, but for whatever reason, most kids had guns as being off limits in certain areas, whereas knives were acceptable. You could put them in your pocket, you could put them in your backpack and carry them around. I'm just telling that was anecdotal from me. Um, early environment with drugs and alcohol. So, you know, they had access and involvement there. They, you know, they, they were pulled in that direction. Um, association with antisocial children. So that's kind of an interesting one. I'm not sure how to tease that one out because antisocial children um, yeah, they may look, everyone has a need to belong and I'll get to that in a minute. But what often happens is when antisocial children match up with other antisocial children, as long as they're not angry and, you know, forbidden from the culture already, they don't naturally form a violent group. They, they often form a, you know, you might see the same thing play out and now all of a sudden they're, they're playing Pokemon six days a week or they're, you know, they're, they're skating or they're, uh, you know, they're riding their bikes all over town. And yes, they might get into mischief, but that it doesn't necessarily equate to violence. But moving on, pervasive exposure to violence on TV. So in the 90s, that's what they were looking at. 
remember, they started with environmental predisposition. That was their start point. And I started looking into that and I found that that was often the case. As, as I looked through some of the research, obviously I couldn't cover it all and I'll explain why here in just a little bit. There's just more to cover than we're gonna be able to cover. When I started looking into it, I started going, okay, so what does that mean clinically? Attachment stuff. It means people who are outcasts, people who did not have safe and dependable people in their life. Okay, that makes sense. So I started doing some research on my attachment. I just sort of brushing up. And I went to my, my tested and uh, proven handbook of attachment. It is the largest book I have on my shelf, probably. It is, it is a ridiculous. It's probably almost a thousand. It's over a thousand pages. I'm looking at it right now. It's, it's crazy. It's all works cited. It's all done um, by research. And I flipped it open to some of the notes that I had in there about attachment. And let's start with this. For those of you who don't know, attachment happens at birth. And it begins there and it does not end there. It continues through all of these developmental stages. For example, if you study developmental psychology, this is a side note for you. What you'll find is kids who struggle at transitional periods tend to have uh, major issues. So for example, there's developmentally, there's some shifting to long-term memories around four, five, six in that general vicinity. And so kids who have, say, uh, parents getting divorced at four, five, and six tend to have more difficulty with the divorces than children who have their parents get divorced at, say, two through four. And that's, that's because developmentally they're in a transition. And when you flip the world of a child upside down while they're already in a transition, you can end up with trauma, the inability to reconcile what's happening with internally what's happening. So the outside world and the inside world are both chaotic at the same time, and you get this traumatic effect. The same would be true uh, going into, say, puberty. So you know, anywhere from the age of about 10 to 14, there's this soft spot, this uh, developmental uh, challenging spot where massive upheaval at those times, mixed on the outside in the environment, mixed with the internal upheaval, the natural tendency toward that development and this, those misreading of social cues, the moving from black and white to gray thinking and stuff like that, that's going to be one of those transitions. There's another transition as a, a child leaves the home. If we move to a new home or we change their room immediately the day after they leave and we start taking photos and posting it on social media, it can cause some environmental challenge for that kid who is, is not necessarily super secure. Okay. That was my sidebar. Keep that in mind as we move forward. Uh, but there, you know, as I'm looking through my attachment book and I'm going, okay, what are the key elements here? Well, let's just start with, there's several types of attachment. I'm not going to dig into all of them. What I want to highlight is what we're going for is secure attachment. Secure attachment means these two things, safe and dependable. 
That's essentially what the research suggests is that a child, a young child needs a safe and dependable adult who, who caretakes them. It doesn't have to be the parent alone. Although there is some biological predisposition toward, um, I'll give you the, the best example I can. Many of you might have noticed that a crying child is not super bothersome unless it's your own crying child. There's this biological predisposition within us toward our own offspring, which means our child cries and it drives us absolutely batty. But another child crying, and to some of you, like you might even think that's cute. You might be like, oh, that poor child. Oh, and that mom is doing such a good job. Oh, and there comes the dad, and the dad is holding the baby now. That is so cute. But when it's our own child, we will go and we will hold them. But everything in us is just driving us crazy. By design, it's designed to get our attention. Okay. So. I flipped through the pages a little bit, came to something that I did want to share with you out of my uh, attachment handbook, uh, and that is this. Because I'm looking at violence, I wanted to see what my big book said about violence. Now, this book is, I think I purchased it around 2008, 2009, something like that. And it's it's got research basically right up into the publishing date, which you know I believe is probably pretty close to that. I want to read this part real briefly. During early childhood, infant with disorganized, disorganized attachment. That means uh, insecure. They're, they're just, there's not good stability in their child to adult relationships. Infant with disorganized status has been associated with aggressive and externalizing symptoms. We have known this for a very long time. This is not new information. In a six-year longitudinal study, for those of you who don't know, longitudinal studies are very expensive, so we don't get approvals to do longitudinal studies nearly as much as we would other types of studies. Longitudinal studies go over a period of time, and they're supposed to follow the same uh, group from beginning to the end. In a six-year longitudinal study, children who were classified as disorganized in infancy were much more likely to develop aggressive behavior problems in preschool and elementary school. Now, that might seem like a no-duh, but I wanted to say it because it is what the research says. The research is very, very clear that if a child does not have a secure attachment with an adult who is safe and dependable, they are more likely to exhibit external behaviors of aggression. Now, that's the research. Let me summarize this. Secure attachments to infants and children are absolutely critical to the reduction of violence, period. Set all of the tools aside, the stones, the whips, the swords, the ropes, the chariots, the bullets, the cannons, the ships, the planes, the drones, the grenades, set them all aside. They are less likely to pick up any of those 
if they have secure attachment. And there's a really simple explanation for this from a clinical perspective. When we belong, we don't see the need to be violent as much. So then as I went down that rabbit hole, I wanted to know, then why are groups of people becoming more and more violent, it seems? Groups. I'm talking about, when I say groups, I could be talking about governments and nations. I could be talking about, uh, you know, uh, racial divides. I could be talking about gender divides. They, They become more violent. Why? Well, I looked at just the big picture because I was trying to solve some of this cultural issue. From 1903 1903 to 1972, 69 years, there were 15 peer-reviewed articles that I could access. 15. Now, that's not very many on this topic. Almost all of them looked at individual stories. Almost all of them looked at individual stories. That is super significant. I'm going to explain to you why. From 1973 to 2022, 49 years, there were 4,668 articles. I don't know if you can do the math, but that's significantly more. Most of them appear to be groups against groups. So we are clarifying, classifying, discriminating. Great. That is normal process in our brain. You can listen to other podcasts I've done that explain that process. We do clarify, classify, and discriminate. And discriminate, just to clarify, does not mean discriminate against. It's to discriminate, to categorize. So we clarify, we classify, and then we have to be, we have to be able to tell the difference between one classification and another classification. So we discriminate. We find nuances that say, oh, that goes in that file, that goes in that file. That's a normal, natural process within the brain. We, of course, do that in many unhealthy ways, and we do it in many healthy ways. I'll leave that for the other podcast, though. So I was looking at this this context of, Why are we looking at groups against groups? Why is it all about the mass? And I came up to some conclusions that based on the research that I was looking at, because they were talking about belonging. So when we see, you know, recently we had this this shooting in uh, Uvalde, Texas, and the perpetrator, the... um, that did all the violence, he put out a bunch of stuff that gave us the perception that he was trying to find a place to belong. So we highlight that. And we do that because if he came from that mentality, then that mentality might be bad, unhealthy, evil, stuff like that. The problem with that is We all have the need to belong. If you look in my history or your own history, 
You're going to find little places where you went and you joined some association or you affiliated with certain people when you were in high school or you went to a specific college because that's where your parents went or like you want to belong just like that kid in Uvalde, Texas. We all have that need, not want, but that need to belong. That was one thing. Another thing is a loss of identity. I started to recognize that there was a loss of individual identity. And I started to think, how does that fit? How does a loss of identity fit into the conversation? Well, I am going to take a sidebar here and tell you something that I think might be going on. And you, by all means, have to do your own research and exploration and figure this out for yourself. But I have a theory of my own that's going on in the background that it is very possible that we are seeing this current generation rebel against the group identity. Why? I think it's possible. I think it's even likely based on the way the humans develop, the way that groups develop, just the developmental psychology behind it all, that part of the rebelling that is going on is toward fitting into certain groups that they don't believe in. So if you know, group A, B, and C have all unique properties, right? They have some shared properties. They all, each of them has unique properties, but they, they have some shared. And they are all violent. If I'm a child growing up, I don't want to be part of any of them. Why would I want to be part of that violence? Or if, you know, so what they're looking for is the uniqueness again. They want the individual life to matter, which by design, it should. But by practice, 4,668 of which most, the vast majority of them are telling you group stories, not individual stories. So I started looking at the political landscape and I started going, oh, somebody else has caught on to this. Right or wrong, believe it or don't believe it, there is one one political party that I can identify that is really trying to in- emphasize the individuality. No wonder they're getting so much attention. If they give the individuals attention, then the individuals will feel accepted and their uniqueness can be highlighted. Why wouldn't a young person gravitate toward that individualism. They would. It makes sense because they want to be unique. So the solution is, let's get back to the individual matters for the group. Your thoughts and opinions matter for the group. Why can't we do that? We can. We must. Because The sociology, the psychology suggests it's necessary. It's necessary. We want to reduce violence, make the lives of the individuals matter. It starts at birth. 
It doesn't start six months after birth. It doesn't start six years after birth. It starts at birth. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to digress here for just a second. Uh, so bear with me. And then I'll, I'll go ahead and summarize. This is an anecdotal side note. But I, I just have to, I just feel the need to share it real quick. I have often wondered and sometimes actually spoken about this concept. I worked in a school district at one point and I noticed all of this money, time, energy, resources going into the high school baseball field, football field, track, all of that. And I noticed that there was significantly less money going into the elementary school and the middle school, track, baseball fields, soccer fields, stuff like that. And I started to ask the question, why? Why would we expect a five-year-old in kindergarten to be able to maintain their own field? We wouldn't. But could we expect a high school kid to maintain their own field? And this brought me back to a story of of my own. I had a a coach, a baseball coach in high school and in college for a bit, uh, Patrick Bailey. He was uh, part of uh, Westland, George Fox, Oregon State. Um, He required us to do field maintenance. It wasn't a suggestion. It was a requirement. He wanted our field to play a certain way. So he taught us how to make the lip of the grass allow us to get more uh, advantages on bunts. Or, you know, we would, you know, take away the lip so that the ball wouldn't hop funny off of it. Or whatever it is that we were going for based on our team strengths, he would have us go out there and do. Our pitchers maintained the mound. Um, there was, yeah, obviously we had all the tools were, were provided for us, but we did the work. And I got to thinking one day, this was probably 15 years ago. And I actually had this conversation with a principal at my school. I didn't understand why we were infusing all this money and time and resources into the high school fields when the high school kids can do the work themselves, we just need to give them the tools. They would take so much more pride in it if they did the work themselves. And then when somebody went onto the football field and spun cookies, the whole football team would be upset and would take care of the issue, hopefully without violence, right? The idea being like, you messed up our football field, we're going to fix it, but we're going to find out who it is and we're going to hold them accountable preferably through the school system. That's so doable at the high school level. Then you could take all that money that's going to the high school systems and you could put it into the elementary and the middle school systems where the kids are not as capable. So if you did it, what you would end up with is a reverse. You would have all of the money going toward the elementary school stuff, a little bit less going to the middle school, and less going to the high school, even though the system would show you that the high school stuff was better, the middle school stuff was good, and the elementary school stuff was also good. Because we're putting the money to compensate for what the players can't do. Now, that was just one example, using athletics. But I'm saying that because of the side note, right? The side note is sometimes... We take away the individual identity. Look, somebody on the team is going 
to find their place on the team because they are the best at making the mound firm so that all of the pitchers benefit from it. The best at uh, cutting the grass so that it lays just the way they want it. Right? Somebody's going to take up that talent and it's going to give them more of a sense of belonging, not less. All right. Side note over. Let me recap what I've gone over. Here's the deal. This is, this is what I have for takeaways. One, we have to stand for something or we'll fall for anything. You know how many people in our history have said that? Alexander Hamilton, Tupac, uh, you've got Malcolm X, and thousands more. Why? Because there's a truth in it. No matter what environment you're in, we have to stand for something. And when it comes to violence, like what we're seeing in schools and whatnot, I can tell you where to focus the energy from a psychological stand. It's be secure attachers. Stand for secure attachment. Mentor somebody. Mentor somebody. Go out there and find some kid that needs love and attention and give it to them. Obviously, don't be creepy about it. Make sure you do it with their parents' knowledge and stuff like that. You know, just don't don't go pick them up on the sidewalk. That's weird. But definitely go out there and make yourself available. Coach a team. Volunteer in the school. They're going to do a background check. And then once you're done with that, you can volunteer. You don't have to have a kid in the school to volunteer in a school. You'll get involved politically. Okay, that's one takeaway. (sighs) Another takeaway that I have here is if you don't like what you're being led to, stop following it. You don't have to be violent. If you don't like where you're being led, uh, I, I have referred to this in the past, but there's a book called The Power of Four. And it's a, it's a leadership lessons by uh, the Lakota tribe. It's one of the best leadership books on my shelf, probably. That's my opinion. And one of the things that they say is a leader can't lead if they don't have a follower. So if you don't like where you're being led, stop following. It's pretty simple. Eventually, that leader's going to realize they're all alone and they're either going to come back and join the group wherever you guys decided to go, or they're going to change their approach completely and try to pull you back. Either way, we've changed the way the leader's going to lead. All right. Violence isn't necessary there either. Just turn and walk a different direction. They can't lead if you don't follow. Number three. Take care of our children. Take care of our children. It starts there. And truthfully, when you take care of a child, you pay it forward better than any other pay it forward you can come up with. You can donate money. It's not going to be as effective as taking a child under your wing. You are, let's say, super rich. And you take in a child that is not rich. And because of that, they get to learn how to manage their money and they change their family's lineage for five generations. That's a pay it forward. You have dug yourself out of a hole. You have failed and failed and failed again, but somehow 
you managed to survive and you are reasonably successful. You may not have a lot of money, but you have a little bit of time and you give that time to a child that is struggling and they learn it's not about falling down. It's about getting up because you can teach that to them. And then they teach that to their children and their children teach that to their children. You change generations. So like I said, number three, take care of our children. We have to take care of our children. Number four, this is the final one I'm going to leave you with. It starts and ends with love. Love is at the individual level. We cannot love a movement more than an individual. We cannot do that. It is a failure psychologically, sociologically, if we love a movement more than the individuals. If there's a group of individuals that are passionate about a movement, it's the love of the individuals that makes it go. There's this video online um, uh, of this, uh, the second leader. It's, it's not the first leader. It's the second one that joins them. The second one that joins them and starts doing what the first one was doing is the one that creates the movement. It's the love of that first connection that creates the possibility of a movement. You want a movement? You have to start with loving the individuals. That means it's not hating the opponent. That cannot be the focus because that leads to violence. And that is not the solution. It's love of the individual and a passion in a similar direction that creates a movement. Whereas a hatred for the opponent creates violence. So it starts and it ends with love of individuals. That's how our culture is created. With that, I'm going to go ahead and sign off here. Please tell a friend. Uh, leave me feedback. Go ahead and give me five stars if you're if you're into that thing. But please, I like comments. I like feedback and comments the most. Um, follow me. Download my my podcast. Uh, tell 10, 20, 500 people. Uh, get the word out there that we're here and we're trying to help. Thank you very much and have a good one.